This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis Center. The Davis Center. The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Eurasian Enigma. Today, we're in conversation with Masha Gessen, the Russian-American journalist, writer, and author of many books, including Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, and most recently, The Brothers, The Road to an American Tragedy, which profiles the life of the Tsarnaev brothers. In this conversation, we talk about her most recent work, as well as how she built her life and career navigating between Russia and America. Enjoy! I'm going to ask you my last question mm -hmm. first, which is I, I love the description of the main mosque in Mahachkala as uh, at once grand and shabby. And I was wondering if you see that as a metaphor for Russia today, and if you could elaborate a little bit on how that might work. Um, well, now that you mention it, it's a perfect <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean that um, that mosque actually is a bit of uh, a bit of sort of contemporary Russia in miniature, not exactly miniature because it's huge, but uh, but in miniature compared to Russia, because the ambitions of it are so great and sort of the scale, the what in Russian we would call razmach, you know, just uh, uh, the scale on which things were planned and done, is so impressive, and then no single act that went into building this huge mosque was actually carried through right so like the walls weren't fully painted and the and the stairs weren't finished and it was so horribly furnished i mean really looked like it was furnished with castaways which which is what russia feels like right and i think that in fact some of what's what's been talked about a lot in the last few years is sort of the transformations in moscow and whether they're in dissonance or congruence with with what's going on with politics actually has to do with some very discrete spaces that were sort of fully realized, which is so unusual in, in Russia, right? But Gorky Park and, uh, and a couple of other parks and maybe in you know, some, some bike paths, but the bike paths are always dead end, I tell you as a bicycle rider, which is also a great metaphor. Uh, but really tiny little discrete places are the ones that, that get finished. And then everybody marks them because it's such an unusual uh, experience. So this idea of castaways, right, and refugees, that brings me back to my initial questions. Because so much of that book is on the immigrant experience, right, and why it's different for different people. And obviously, you're the an example of a successful immigrant. You came from Russia as a teenager. You went to high school in uh, not very far away from here and, uh, and were able to go back and forth and still go back and forth to Russia. But on the whole, you've, you've sort of made the most of this experience of leaving one place and, and becoming at one with another place. And yet when you read about the Tsarnaevs, so much went wrong with their immigrant experience. Each each member of the family seems to have been dislocated and isolated in a different way. But is it possible, especially as we think of what's happening in Europe now with all these refugees from Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, and they're all going to end up in Germany or in the US, what makes an immigrant experience successful or not successful? Like what accounts for the fact that some people can integrate themselves and other people just find it completely alienating? Well, it's funny that you call me a successful immigrant because I'm, of course, the ultimate successful immigrant. I repatriated and then emigrated again. So <laughs> now you're an expert. I, I, I'm, but but I think the you know the the, the the ultimate measure of successful immigration is that you can you can repeat it, um, which few people get to do. But I, I I thought about it a lot when I was writing the book because 
so much and obviously you know when we write about other people especially when we don't have access to them we always project our own experiences on them but still sort of taking that into account it's so much of it felt familiar and i did have the sense of you know, there but for the grace of god go i not in the sense that i would have become a terrorist but in the sense that it could have all gone terribly wrong i mean the starting point wasn't dissimilar my parents came here to give their children an education they got some help from some wonderful people in the Jewish community. Jewish community and vocational services, that's what it was. But it was this, the kind, this, this similar kind of help to the kind of, that Cernayevs got, right? They, they, they really they made good contacts here. Their landlady, who lives a couple of blocks from here, was this wonderful Russian speaker who became really involved with the family. And yet nothing worked. I mean, I, I ended up in my thinking falling back on something almost paradoxical. I think that my parents just had a such, such a strong sense of intellectual entitlement. They were so sure that their children were going to go to Harvard that <laughs> I narrowly escaped that fate because I wanted to study architecture. And there was no oh, undergraduate architecture thank goodness, at Harvard. Right? <laughs> but my brother, you know, was stuck mm -hmm. going to Harvard. But it was, yeah, we were smart kids and we went to good high schools, as did these kids. I'm not, I'm not saying we're exactly the same, but it, but it, it is really something in, intangible and, and, and immeasurable. And I think a lot of it has to do with your sense of purpose and entitlement, mm -hmm. just knowing they can, they can fit in. That said, the experience of being a Soviet Jew in this country in the 1980s, I think, is measurably different from the experience of being a Muslim immigrant in this country in the 2000s. Even though these kids didn't actually read as Muslim a lot of the time because because they looked whiter than most Americans ex expect Muslims to look. And, and even there's, there's a small note in the book that Jahar, when he went to mosque, he was asked when he'd converted. So, I saw that. And that's, that's, that's very familiar sort of when you don't fit in anywhere. But I think I think it's much more difficult to claim your place in an environment that is at least implicitly hostile. Mm -hmm. You're one of the few writers, American writers, that writes about Russia and is accessible to mainstream Americans. People really read your books. And I was wondering, when you're writing, are you trying to decode some of the Russian rituals and experiences for Americans? In other words, do you see yourself as understanding the Russian traditions and the Russian actions much more clearly and therefore being able to explain them to an audience that doesn't necessarily understand, you know, taking off your shoes as you come into the house and sort of all of the little rituals of, of Russian life. I think so. I mean, it, I think it has to do obviously with growing up in Russia, but also at this point, I didn't just grow up in Russia. I've spent most of my life there. And, and, and this really is an accident of biography and we keep circling back to this theme of immigration, but it's, it's important, right? I, out of my 48 years, I spent 36 in Russia. It just so happens that I went to high school and college in this country, so and I'm you're an American. Here now, right? Yeah. And I'm here now, so that made me an American. Mm -hmm. But um, but with a wealth of Russian experience that no other American enjoys. So I think in a, in a way, probably my my books about Russia are the most productive because so much of what I had to learn I learned without trying. Mm -hmm. But what what would you think that the American public most needs to understand about Russia? What I think the American public most needs to understand about Russia actually has nothing to do with Russian culture or Russian tradition. I think it has to do with the nature of totalitarianism. One of the biggest well-meaning fallacies is expressed by the song, the Russians love their children too, which actually, if you, if you sort of unpack that, that wonderful sentiment, it assumes kind of human agency that doesn't exist in a totalitarian country and doesn't exist in a country that's retrofitting totalitarianism, which Russia is doing now. And what I mean by that is that the, the logic behind that 
way of thinking is, well, if the Russians care about the, their survival and the survival of their beloved children, if they're human like us, then they will behave the way we do because we behave in our best interest. Well, totalitarian states never act in the best interests of the population, and the population lacks the instruments necessary to make them act in their best interests. So whether the Russians love their children too or not is completely irrelevant. Do you ever feel like you're writing for a Russian audience? No. No? Do you think that anybody in, in Russia is kind of following your books with, with the idea that you're going to tell them something that people who are publishing in Russia will not be telling them? I'm, I'm thinking particularly about so, the Pussy Riot book. You know, it seemed right. like so much of it was, would have been of, of deep interest to some Russians. I think that I think you're absolutely right. That's, that's a book that, that sort of explains something that most Russians who would be interested in reading it still don't understand. You know, I don't think that means that the Russian audience has moved closer to the American audience. I just think that the Russian audience has, uh, has become equally alienated from some of the things that go on in the country. I've had, you know, I've had a long career of struggling with the issue of writing in English and being translated, been translated or not being translated into Russian. And it was actually quite painful because I was living in Russia for 20 years and writing into the English speaking void. Mm -hmm. uh, you put so much more of yourself into books than into articles. Mm -hmm. Early, my, my first book about the Russian intelligentsia, I didn't want it to be translated into Russian because I felt like it was such a basic explanatory book for a Western audience, and I would have felt very embarrassed and self-conscious if it if it had been translated into Russian. It would have seemed primitive, I think. I think that's actually changed, and that's another really sad comment on on what's happened, sort of to the level of, of the conversation in Russia. I mean, I think there's been again, once again, a net loss of knowledge mm -hmm. in, in the last twenty years. That book has things to say to contemporary Russians. Their parents knew, without, but they don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then my next book was about my two grandmothers, which couldn't be published in Russia because the subtitle was how my grandmother survived Hitler's war and Stalin's peace. And so it was actually, and that book has a really interesting page because I, I really wanted it to be translated and I thought it could find an audience in Russia. And at first publishers were not interested at all because they could not see what the value of a personal story could be. They were like, this is the whole 20th century right. and these women's lives. And, and they had amazing lives, but nobody was interested. Then there was this incredible runaway bestseller, which was basically a transcript of a series of interviews with uh, Liliana Lungina. Liliana Lungina was a... She was exactly my grandmother's age. She had left the Soviet Union with her parents and then repatriated and basically got stuck. And then she was Astrid Lindgren's translator into Russian. But really, she was not a famous woman. She just was a thinking person who had a very clear recollection of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. You know, and she lived through it all being Jewish and she lived through it all having having been outside the Soviet Union and having come back in. And the the, the, the publishing house that put it out put out something like 4,000 copies in their first run. They had sold 300,000 by the end of the first year. It was a, a life-changing phenomenon for Russian readers and publishers. So then publishers started scrambling for these memoirs. But for biographies of unfamous people? Is that of uh, un unfamous people, that generation, the mm -hmm. generation that could tell about the 20th century from the point of view of a private person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there are probably two dozen books that have come out of that kind of private memoir. But by that point, so about seven or eight years ago, my book could no longer be published in Russia because of the subtitle, because, uh, because of the equivalence between Hitler and Stalin. Mm -hmm. So now there's this wonderful young risk-taking publisher who's actually uh, 
bought the rights and is having it translated. He is very sweet. We met and uh, and he said, you know, I think it's my civic duty. You are a Russian writer and you've you haven't been translated to Russian. So even if we put out like five copies and that's all we're allowed to sell, that's that's what we're going to do. That's how my probably first and only experience of being a living classic. <laughs> and uh, the one book that has been translated into Russian was the book about the mathematician Grigory Perelman. I was completely vilified for it. And a lot of mathematicians loved it. And like, we'll quote it back. That's to a me. pretty small audience, though, right? <laughs> well, maybe not in not Russia. Russia, but yeah. uh, but you know, I will actually, I, I do actually meet people who quote the book back to me as mathematicians would, you know. But uh, uh, but I was vilified for writing that the greatest Russian mathematician of the 20th century, probably of all time, actually, Alexei Kolmogorov, was gay. And it's not like I outed him; I used his published love letters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to his partner of 50 years and noted that homosexuality was present. Mm -hmm. But I, uh, that never should have been said out loud. So it was it was the subject of much controversy. So it wasn't even Perelman himself, but it was no, a sub-story. It was a sub-story. Sub he was a very important man to, to Perelman. Yeah. He, you know, uh, Kolmogorov was the founder of the whole Russian mathematics school. The, ma the Russian mathematics school as the academic institution, but also mathematics school as the institutions of secondary learning. So he created that whole system. So there's no way to write a book about a, a, a great Russian mathematician without explaining how that whole thing works. Mm -hmm. And I actually thought that his sexuality was relevant because he created this this boy's world mm -hmm. based on these ideas of, of education and antiquity, mm -hmm. of uh, learning history and mathematics and physical culture in 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 a, in a world of men without you know the distraction of female of, of females it really was important to mention that he was gay so now this new publisher uh wants to do the book about the grandmothers and he also wants to do the book about pussy red which he has suggested he can do if he places a black rectangle over the word putin every time it appears oh really so and that would and be very exciting. It was that, that kind that, of book. Yeah. That would be fabulous because yeah. you know I met with him because my agent said he wants to discuss the changes that that he want, they want to make to the book to make it publishable. I know you'll say no, but do you want to meet with him? Says my agent who knows me pretty well, and I said, well, of course, you know, I'm dying to hear what what they would come up with, what they see as criminal in the book. They what they see as criminal in the book is pretty straightforward. And the whole testimony that the girls give when mm -hmm. they're being sentenced. Was that already released in Russia? Is that available in Russian? Because I had never seen it kind of all in one place, as in your book. Yes and no. I used audio mm -hmm. to do the translations, so I'm not sure I have transcripts. I wanted to make sure because even if I had if I had had transcripts, I would have used audio. You would have checked it, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but also people have a tendency to clean up when they transcribe and when they translate. Whereas, uh, th and there are some, some sort of gaps of logic in those closing statements, which I thought were part of the document that they were. I mean, they were written under conditions of torture, under t totally inhumane conditions, so I, it, it's hard to imagine that they were able to write them at all. So I thought I thought that was, that was important to document. But anyway, um, the story of those closing statements and the trial in, as a whole, there were several reporters in the courtroom the whole time including RAPSI, which was the Russian court reporting agency, which put out a fairly full set of video and audio that, uh, to the extent that they were allowed to, to, to make it. So there were several times when they were, uh, they were not uh, allowed to film the prosecution side, either the witnesses or the, or the prosecutors, for fear of their lives, or, or the court, right? So we only <laughs> glimpsed the court a couple of times. In, the, in those videos, but, but they, did, they recorded audio of most of that. Mm -hmm. 
and but a couple of times they were they were uh, they were told to stop the audio as well. And then there was uh, Yelena Kostichenko of Nova Gazeta, who's a wonderful young reporter who tweeted most of the trial and also wrote reports then I think based on her tweets. And that's probably the fullest uh, the closest there, there is to 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 full transcript. Now, that came out in Nova Gazeta. And then the same young publisher who was putting out my books, he put out a book of Yelena Kostichenko's reports. And they were going to include, with an introduction by, by Nadia Tolakonnikov of Kusiraya, they were going to include, obviously, her uh, large compiled report on the, on the trial. But now in Russia, there's no, officially, there's no prior censorship at this point. But there are these laws that are used to enforce what most people think of as self-censorship. I don't think it's self-censorship at this point. I think it's full-fledged censorship because the laws basically, there are laws on extremism and laws on the protection of children from information. And if you're found to be in violation after the book comes out, right? Because nobody's supposed to see the book before it comes out. There's no prior censorship. But after the book comes out, if you're in violation, then bookstores will not carry it. So the press run will probably be pulped. And you may also face criminal penalties. So that's a pretty severe double threat both to publishers' profit margins and to their personal security. So publishers have invented a way of talking to Roskomnadzor, the media authority, beforehand, just to check that they were not going, they're not going to have any trouble after the book is published, So, which amounts to spontaneous prior censorship. Well, self-censorship plus this kind of officially, the kind of agreed-upon constraints. Right, but I think, I mean, I, I, I think this rises to the level of, of a full-fledged censorship because... What you have is publishers going to the government to show them the book before it is published and uh, and get their opinion, knowing that if they go against their opinion, they will suffer severe financial and possibly criminal penalties. So, you know, this, this reminds me of some research that one of our graduate students is doing on censorship under Stalin. He's um, He's found that the English writing journalists under Stalin had relationships with the censors, and before anything was published, they would basically negotiate with the censor. So well, it's not no, like they... kidding. My mother was uh, my grandmother was the was the censor for oh really for English videos. What was her I name? Just, uh, her name? Uh, well, uh, your researcher would probably not know it, um, but my book describes it in some detail. I mean, I did hours and hours of interviews with her on, on that. I'll have to because he he had he was focusing on somebody named Rosenberg, but I think it was a man. There were no Jews working with foreign correspondents aside from my grandmother between 1946 and 1957. This was earlier. This, this was, was 20s and 30s. Ah, 20s and 30s. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, but it's very interesting, this process, because you think, you know, they write mm -hmm. something and then the center blacks it out. But in fact, there was this very interesting process of negotiation with the censor. Yes. And there was also, I mean, from the point of view of the censor, there was this, also this whole relationship with the correspondents like Harrison Salisbury, when he was reporting on the anti-Jewish campaign in 1948, 1949, he was really writing for my grandmother because she never let any of his dispatches through. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was a private correspondence. But she yeah. loved him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I interviewed her, she said, you know, some people were just, they would just regurgitate whatever they read in the Soviet papers. Like there was this guy named Walter Cronkite and then... That was so boring. <laughs> but Harrison Salisbury, now there was a great writer. I never allowed any of his depressions through it. <laughs> but actually, just yeah. very quickly, I want to finish the story of Yelena Kostichenko. So when, when the publisher took the book of her reports to Roskomnadzor, Roskomnadzor said everything is fine, including Nadia Tolakonikov's pre preface, except for the report on the trial. So they actually published the book with the report excised. Just blank cut, pages. Cut, uh, no, blank pages blank that pages. say political censorship on them. 
политическая цензура. And the, uh, they have the URL of the website where they uploaded <laughs> the report. <laughs> so to the answer, uh, the answer to your question of whether they've been available in Russia, the answer is complicated. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so. right, thank you so much for uh, for thank speaking you. with us, Masha. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It was fun.